Welcome to another episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholarship and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate some of the great work being done by historians of the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with our listeners ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For today's episode, we have with us in the studio Dr. Milorad Lazic, the author of Unmaking Detente, Yugoslavia, the United States, and the Global Cold War, 1968 to 1980, which came out in 2022 with Lexington Books. Associate Professor Thomas Burgess will be interviewing him about his remarkable study of diplomacy and intrigue from the perspective of a nation that punched above its weight in the Cold War. Yugoslavia was unique in that, while socialist, it was not aligned with either the Soviet Union or China and sought to pursue a very independent path in the intense global rivalries of the era. Thanks again, Milorad, for joining us today in the studio. Thanks for having me. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. So I guess the first question that we'd all like to hear more about is, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I was uh, I was born in, in former Yugoslavia. I, I lived there uh, for a while, and um, I witnessed its dissolution and whatever happens after. Uh, so I was kind of always personally fascinated with, uh, with the place of my birth. There was uh, no more. And when I pursued study of history, the part of uh, study of history, my undergrad and graduate programs was to kind of explore the aspects of Yugoslav history that intrigued me personally. It's really fascinating that while Yugoslavia no longer exists, we should all keep in mind that when it did exist in the Cold War, there were millions of people who were quite patriotic and very much believed in the Yugoslav experiment and were beneficiaries of the system in place during the Cold War. That's absolutely right. And this is what is so fascinating about this whole story about Yugoslavia, which I focus on very small portion of Yugoslav history. I cover 1970s. Uh, say, for example, generation of my parents would say this is the golden era of this, what do you call, Yugoslav experiment. But uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, this uh, uh, the whole Yugoslav project uh, was a really uh, a lot of people supported it. Uh, a lot of people uh, benefited from it, and even right now in 2023, there are some you know signs of Yugo nostalgia and you know, like a turning back toward those times when things seemed to be better and. One of the points of my book is actually to provide, at least to, to illuminate some of the aspects of Yugoslav history and why that project was so appealing to many at, at this time. Can you say a bit more about why Yugoslavia was exceptional in terms of the Cold War division between the capitalist West and the socialist East? Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to take us back in 1948, Yugoslavia was uh, just another communist country in Eastern Europe, and uh, one may argue that Yugoslavia was probably one of the most trusted Soviet allies, a uh, country that was totally Stalinized in the process. But in 1948, there's this you know, like unexpected split between Yugoslav communists and Soviet communists with very far-reaching consequences. And uh, 
going forward from 1948, Yugoslavia tried to carve its own uh, a path uh, in this Cold War division of the world. Essentially, it forces Yugoslavs to uh, achieve some sort of understanding with the West. And Yugoslavia, in period between 1948 and early 1950s, will be uh, the largest uh, recipient of Western, mostly American, economic and military aid in the world. Uh, but second part of that consequence of that split was that Yugoslavia also tried to find its uh, uh, unique outlet to global politics by forging these alliances and relationships with the countries in the global south. Well, not just countries, but also liberation movements in global south. And Yugoslav history after 48 will be kind of framed within uh, these kind of relationships, uh, trying to regulate its you know, relations with superpowers, but also trying to you know, carve its own way uh, by creating uh, the so-called non-aligned movement which started in 1961 in Belgrade with its first conference. And that was an outcome of the Bandung Conference in 1955 in Indonesia. It was one of the legacies of that, but it was the first. You're saying Yugoslavia was the host nation for the, the first conference of the non-allied nations. So Marshal Tito was a major instigator and leader of that movement, a major figure in getting this all off the ground. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Yugoslavia did not participate in Bendong. That's uh, also there was like often misconception that Yugoslavia was at Bandung, but he wasn't. Uh, however, Tito will he was on a journey uh, in 1950s. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 1954 he traveled to India and and traveled to Egypt and Ethiopia, kind of gathering uh, uh, kind of starting to 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 create some some sort of alliance with uh, leaders of Ethiopia, Egypt and India. Uh, this will be kind of more outlined in 1956 at Tito's resort in in Brioni, that's island off of coast of Istria, very popular place. Uh, Tito's like summer residence, and he gathered uh, respective leaders of India and, and Egypt there, and, and they crafted the so-called Briani Declaration, which was one of the founding documents of the non-ally movement. It took additional five years to uh, gather all interested participants in Belgrade, but this was uh, a huge success of Tito's diplomacy at that time. And so the general thrust of the, of the non-aligned movement was to basically set forth a, an alternative path between the East and West, a, an independent course in the Cold War. Am I correct that smaller nations like that of Yugoslavia, by joining together in a common movement of committing itself to neutrality in the Cold War, would benefit from that association with other like-minded nations? Is that a fair characterization? That is a fair characterization. I, I would just uh, add a caveat to neutrality because Yugoslavs never wanted to be associated with neutrality. They said, we are not neutral in the Cold War. We're non-aligned. 
It doesn't mean we're gonna, going to stay away from global affairs. And, but the rest of your assessment is absolutely correct, that they were uh, looking as a non-ally movement as this kind of platform they can help them influence global affairs and, and go beyond and transcend the power dynamic of the superpowers at that time. So your book is primarily, however, about the Cold War in the 1970s from the Yugoslav perspective. But like most nations, Yugoslav foreign policy was in some ways a reflection of its domestic policies. And for this reason, Yugoslavia felt somewhat vulnerable in the Cold War because of its unique structure and history. Is that correct? Yes, it, it is. Um, so just to clarify one thing first. So why Yugoslavia felt so vulnerable, and this is kind of the main point of my book, because I want to tell a story about the global Cold War in 1970s, but from the perspective of a, of a small state. Uh, Yugoslavia felt vulnerable because they viewed detente as uh, they, they had this kind of very uh, ambivalent attitude toward detente. Uh, they greeted some sort of understanding between Soviet Union and the United States in order to avoid another Cuban Missile Crisis as, as a positive development in global uh, politics. However, on the on the other hand, they also saw detente as really dangerous uh, uh, attempt to carve sphere, spheres of influence in, in the Cold War. That would be particularly dangerous for countries like Yugoslavia. There was, there was non-aligned, uh, communist but non-aligned. And this confluence of factors in the late 1960s and early 1970s uh, with regards to their domestic politics and, and very unique uh, constitutional uh, order and ethnic structure of, of their state uh, made the taunt even more uh, dangerous to them. And just to uh, explain that in 1960s, late 1960s, uh, early 1970s, uh, the, one of the key questions in domestic politics in Yugoslavia is uh, Tito's succession. Uh, what's going to happen after he dies? He was born in 1892, so his generation was already on the way out. Uh, he was viewed by many within Yugoslavia and outside of Yugoslavia as this cohesive factor that keeps, you know, like a different uh, ethnic and religious groups together. But there was a question, what's going to happen after him? And in combination with foreign policy issues where detente is perceived as this kind of very dangerous arrangement between two superpowers of sharing spheres of influence and Tito's uh, ripe age, there was a question, what's going to happen after him? Is Yugoslavia going to be able to preserve its sovereignty and independence? Or Yugoslavia is going to be um, taken over by either, you know, like the West or the East. I guess that brings us back to 1948 when Yugoslavia did begin to chart its independent course in the Cold War, associating neither with the, with the NATO alliance nor with the Warsaw Pact. That's really fascinating. I think our listeners should also sort of realize just how fragile sovereignty 
uh, meant for many Yugoslavs in a part of the world where there were t- tensions or at least the appearance of tensions on all sides. For example, you have Soviet allied states, client states to the east, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary. Um, but that wasn't the only source of tension or potential tension between Yugoslavia and its neighbors. Yes, Yugoslavia did not uh, feel only endangered from one side. Yes, it was surrounded by Soviet client states. And in period after 1948, there was more or less remote chance of Soviet intervention through some of those states. And, and relations between Yugoslavia and its neighbors were quite tense. Uh, numerous border incidents, particularly the border with Bulgaria, are proved that. But Yugoslavia was also at unease with its Western neighbors, who they believe are doing bidding for the United States or, or Western power in general. Uh, unresolved question of Trieste and, and territory around Trieste was um, something that kind of uh, waited on Yugoslav-Italian relations for a very long time, and it would be finally resolved in 1975 with the OSIMO agreements, which effectively uh, removed that issue from Yugoslav-Italian relations, but it was also a source of, of many, many tensions on both sides, in Italy as well as in Yugoslavia. And 1970s, uh, which is decade on which I focus in my book, kind of many of these questions come to the fore um, in in sense that there is this prevailing sense of uncertainty, what is going to happen once when Tito dies. Yes, and one major issue uh, overshadowing the whole period were, were these ethnic tensions that might potentially erupt following Marshal Tito's death. Maybe you could say a bit more about those. That's a great question, particularly in, in, in the context because we, we already know what happens after. Uh, we, we, we already know the epilogue of Yugoslav's story, uh, but things look slightly different in 1960s and 1970s. And there was, yes, the, the, the fear was real that some foreign powers, particularly Soviet Union, because there was some evidence that Soviet Union was encouraging uh, certain ethnic groups and ethnic nationalisms in order to destabilize the Yugoslav regime, uh, there was a fear that uh, foreign powers will use Yugoslav ethnic and religious structure to uh, create instability. So, for example, in 1970s, uh, official, just to again explain uh, one more thing, the, the official ideology of Yugoslav Communist Party was the ideology of brotherhood and unity, that essentially Yugoslav uh, nations should live in this kind of harmonious uh, federation where brotherhood and unity was the order of the day. Uh, reality sometimes uh, was different. Uh, there were some uh, past grievances, uh, particularly coming from the, the, the way how World War II happened in Yugoslavia, which is very bloody and, and massive atrocities were committed um, in, in, in Yugoslavia, so it's, it's a very messy affair, which is kind of uh, a 
sounds redundant, but in Yugoslavia, World War II was particularly messy because foreign occupation, resistant movements, but also uh, civil war and revolutions were happening simultaneously. Communist Party uh, is, is trying to, to overcome those differences and, and to, to overcome those uh, past grievances by instituting this policy of, of brotherhood and, and unity. But concern is that in the case of uh, in the case of Tito's death, uh, that some foreign powers are going to use that in order to uh, sow discord in Yugoslavia and, and promote their own policy objectives. And Tito himself was Croatian, wasn't he? Or ethnically, yes, he was from from northern western northern part of Croatia. His mother was a Slovene. His father was a Croat. I would not go that far to claim that he was that was his like primary national identity. He saw himself as Yugoslav first and foremost. I would say that yes, but he was way more cosmopolitan in his in his outlook. He spent most of his formative age elsewhere. He 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 was born in Austro-Hungarian Empire. He studied in Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, he was fighting in World War One. He got captured. He spent some time in uh, Russia as a prisoner of war. Um, he returns. Then he spends his time as an agent of Comintern in Paris and Moscow interchangeably until he returns to Yugoslavia. So, so he had a broad outlook, and he his embrace of socialism was also an embrace of socialist cosmopolitanism in some sense, like these ethnic boundaries really shouldn't matter. Ideally, we should all regard ourselves as brothers and sisters. Is that correct? Or Yes, I, I would say that. He had this very broad outlook. Unlike some of his close associates, especially in the, in the later period, um, he had this broader outlook and he had this more like a cosmopolitan outlook. And I think that's probably something that inform his global policies as well. So let's go back to the title of your book, which has, to American ears, this sort of cognitive dissonance, unmaking detente. Americans typically look with some nostalgia towards detente as an era when we were trying to consciously reduced Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviets by agreeing to, you know, limitations on nuclear stockpiles and reducing tensions by recognizing different spheres of influence in the world. I think few Americans actually realize that for people on the ground in a place like Yugoslavia, this whole talk of spheres of influence could be very unsettling and even disturbing. And so, again, Amer I think some Europeans were very, very supportive also of detente because in West Germany, for example, there were fears that if a third world war took place, West Germany would be the frontier in that war between East and West. But you're saying in Yugoslavia, it was just the reverse, that there were fears that if Yugoslavia was declared to be part of one sphere of influence or, or another, then that would allow for some sort of superpower intervention in its domestic affairs. That's absolutely right. Uh, it's interesting. When I started research, uh, I, I didn't know actually what to, to expect to find. And, and reading document after document, and I started with 1968, uh, 
roughly with the time of Soviet-led invasion of Czechoslovakia, which was a matter of a huge concern to Yugoslav leadership and Tito himself, because particularly he was in Czechoslovakia just literally weeks before Soviet tanks would enter. And a lack of U.S. response towards Soviet-led invasion of Czechoslovakia convinced Yugoslav leadership that superpowers have at least some implicit understanding of the spheres of influence. And this in 1968 uh, kind of leads to a series of internal uh, reforms, but also this reshaping of Yugoslav foreign policy. Uh, And detente was uh, perceived, as I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of ambivalence toward detente because Tito said, you know, we want them to talk. This is something that he he told Indira Gandhi and and numerous other non-aligned leaders. He said, we want them to talk, but now it appears that they're talking too much with each other, which for him, it was uh, a problematic in sense that if Soviet Union and the United States can uh, accomplish some sort of agreement, he believed uh, that it would be made at expense of countries like Yugoslavia. And what I found from Yugoslav sources is that he was not alone in his sentiment, that many leaders from the global south, they, they shared similar sentiment. And, and But Tito was in this position as leader of non-aligned movement, or at least, you know, wannabe leader of non-aligned movement, because it's, it's a stiff competition there. And he has this platform to actually uh, uh, explain or articulate this, this sort of anxiety, like what would happen if great powers agree and, and we're left out, and they agree at our expense. And for Yugoslavia, this is an existential question because, again, because of his old age and, and expected departure from historical scene, nobody knows what to, to expect. And, and this is the, at, at the core of, of Yugoslav policies. And why unmaking detente? Because Yugoslavs are trying within their abilities, of course, to kind of spoil these alleged deals. And how to spoil them, they assume very activist policies from South America to Africa to Asia, that they try to interfere in these local conflicts, in, in local crises, and they're seemingly everywhere. They're present discussions about Panama Canal, they're present uh, in discussions about the Middle East, uh, Tito travels to Africa numerous times, but they also develop these very elaborate programs of assistance to countries like in Africa and, and Asia. So, for example, they're sending uh, material and military aid to Egypt or to MPLA in Angola or in 1977 to Ethiopia. Very uh, uh, tangible consequences for these local conflicts all in the name of helping local actors um, to conduct more independent foreign policy and to to kind of uh, uh, 
help them be more independent from superpowers. Oh, so in the case of Angola and Ethiopia, both these ended up being Soviet client states, at least for a part of their Cold War history. But you're saying Yugoslavia was trying to wean them away from that close relationship and encourage them to be more non-aligned, basically. Absolutely, yes. Yugoslavia is sometimes acting, uh, acting in, in, in accords with the, with the Soviet Union, which causes a lot of consternation in Washington. Although Washington wants to have Yugoslavia, it's not as its, its ally, uh, but as as non-aligned country. But sometimes Yugoslav act that seems that they're acting as a Soviet proxy, which a lot of people in Washington don't understand that Yugoslavia is not a Soviet proxy, even if their goals sometimes align. So, for example, in the case of uh, October War in 1973, Yugoslavs opened their airspace for Soviet airplanes to transport military equipment to, to Egypt and Syria. Um, with Angola, situation is quite similar, but only with the caveat that Yugoslavs were there first. They started the program of uh, assistance. First, it was um, only financial and economic assistance to uh, Angolan independence movements. And then by middle of 1960s, uh, they focused on the MPLA. And after 1968, uh, when Agostino Neto comes to Belgrade, Yugoslavs decide to expand this program of aid to include military equipment. And they start supplying MPLA with military equipment, which would reach its kind of the apex in 1975 when Yugoslavs send their cargo ship with enormous quantities of military aid, enormous for Yugoslavia in, in uh, any case, which many in MPLA said this, this was uh, essential for our struggle. And following Yugoslav examples, the Cubans and Soviets decides to join in later portion of 1975. And Yugoslavs are not very happy about Soviet influence there. And they try to do everything that's in their power to keep Angola more non-aligned. So one final question we should probably ask is about Yugoslavia's uh, relationship to the global south. And it was especially active in Africa in terms of aiding organizations like the MPLA or the Derg regime in Ethiopia. But there are other examples that I'm sure you could cite of where Yugoslavia was actively encouraging, say, the non-aligned movement in Africa, but also assisting in development efforts. Can you say more about that, please? So one way how Yugoslavs approached the Global South was through non-alignment. And, and non-alignment provided them with this platform to kind of gather leaders of independent countries from Global South and leaders of liberation movements. Uh, but other part of that story is this uh, sort of bilateral relations uh, that Yugoslavia established with uh, countries in the Global South and liberation movements, which included programs of foreign military aid, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance, and, and so on. Uh, I talked 
in my book about Angola, I talked about Ethiopia, but this is uh, that's that, that's not the end or beginning of Yugoslav uh, efforts to to assist uh, movements in countries in Africa. Uh, Yugoslavia had quite extensive program of uh, humanitarian and military aid to Guinea-Bissau as well. Uh, they also had program of assistance to to Mozambique. Uh, but also they had this like very developed uh, relations with uh, different other African countries, mostly in the areas of uh, economic development and building infrastructural uh, projects abroad. Uh, for example, in, in Kenya or in Zimbabwe and, and so on. From my own research in Africa, I just can't emphasize enough the importance of these relationships for Africans. Um, one component of this story are the number of Africans who went to Eastern Europe for education, and Yugoslavia is a major host nation of those, and they, they often returned to their African territories and played huge roles in the, the coming events of the Cold War and afterwards, and, and their training in the Eastern, Eastern European territories was decisive in, in many respects, but I mean, Yugoslavia wasn't it hosting many African students at this time? Or Yes, uh, vocational training, um, undergraduate studies, military training, but also provided uh, medical services to uh, wounded guerrillas as well. So those connections were, were indeed multiple. And a lot of students studied in, at Yugoslav universities, Belgrade, Zagreb, Sarajevo, Ljubljana, depending uh, on you know, many factors. We probably don't have time to get into that story. Uh, but uh, also Yugoslavia helped with, with other you know, types of assistance as well. Uh, for example, vocational training, um, language training, military training, especially for uh, non-aligned countries, but also members of, of uh, liberation liberation movements they would come to Yugoslavia and receive training in for example guerrilla warfare or learn from Yugoslav guerrilla experiences in World War II uh, which they were able to transfer that knowledge back to a home uh, so it was it was a very beneficial relation so you mentioned at the beginning of our of our interview that there was some there is some degree of nostalgia towards the former Yugoslavia in that age of um, socialism in the Cold War period. And is this one aspect of it that I know this is now in some ways the case in the former East Germany a feeling that we had a global role in helping the newly decolonized territories develop and so forth, and we punched above our weight and we were generous in our assistance and so forth. I'm just, I guess my question really is, is that what are the sources of nostalgia? Why, why do people look, some people look nostalgically towards Yugoslavia today from, from within the former Yugoslav territories? Well, there are multiple sources of that nostalgia. So one of them certainly is this kind of longing for, you know, like simpler times, that, that things 
seemed more straightforward and easier back then. Um, of course, like every nostalgic thinking uh, sometimes is uh, separated from reality and that is that is okay um that nostalgia is and sort of historical memory that nostalgia relies on is is very selective and people look back at yugoslavia who lived in that period and even you have younger generations who don't remember yugoslavia but they kind of remembers sort of a sentiment that you could travel freely. They had more economic opportunities. There were some sort of social networks that people felt more secure in uh, many ways. And they look back at at that. Uh, Then they look at this aspect of a story when Yugoslavia had this uh, sort of respect on global scene, which is, again, also very selective memory. Um, they look at that part of Yugoslav history and they say, hey, look at us now. We're just these, you know, like a irrelevant, you know, tiny independent states that nobody knows about or nobody cares about. And when there was Yugoslavia, things were different. You know, our voice was, you know, like heard. But there's also different, more tangible outcomes of that nostalgia that I don't know, I'm not even sure should I call it nostalgia, but there's kind of appropriation of this memory uh, today, for example, that some countries like, you know, like my uh, native country of Serbia is for its political purposes today is trying to kind of play this role unsuccessfully, if I may add, wants to kind of play this role that Yugoslavia played in the Cold War, by kind of trying to you know, like play both sides in order to achieve its own foreign policy goals. In 2011, for example, Serbia, which is actually not a member of non-aligned movement anymore, non-aligned movement is still out there, but Serbia is not a member of it. Uh, in 2011, they organized a conference uh, as a kind of to commemorate 50th anniversary of, of non-aligned movement in, in Belgrade. It was, of course, inconclusive and, and probably relevant, but these efforts to kind of revive those policies are still there. And another kind of more tangible thing is that many of these connections established during the Cold War are still very much alive. That, uh, for example, something that I, I worked on my research and mentioned in my book in, in, in passing was this programs of military assistance and proliferation of conventional weapons from Yugoslavia to the global south. Those connections are fairly intact, that Serbia and Bosnia and Croatia are still suppliers of many movements and, and governments abroad that you can find weapons from their stockpiles anywhere from Somalia to Yemen to Myanmar and wherever you, you look. They kind of tapped into these existing networks that were left after after the Cold War. So there are many um, types of nostalgia, but there are many also uh, types of legacies of of these policies, they're still very much alive.
Meenarod, thank you for joining us in the studio today. It's been a fascinating discussion. We've all learned quite a bit. And congratulations again on your recent book publication. Uh, thanks for having me. It was, it was a great pleasure. Thank you. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.